Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this episode, we're looking at the situation in Myanmar, which has been under military rule for over 100 days. While the military coup on February the 1st drew international attention, global media has seemingly moved on. However, the situation in Myanmar itself has not stabilised, far from it, according to my guest this week, Thant Mint U. Thant is a historian. His book, The Hidden History of Burma, was published to much acclaim in 2019. And he's also a leading political analyst. The instability of Myanmar since the coup presents a headache for its neighbours, which include both China and India. The army is fighting rebellions across the country, the health system is overwhelmed, and the economy is in freefall. So is Myanmar on the brink of collapse? The military has long had an outsized role in Myanmar. The country is no stranger to military coups. The army seized power in 1962 and initiated a long period in which Burma, as some still call the country, was nominally socialist, authoritarian, impoverished and isolated. Mr. President, first of all, may I express to you and Mrs. Johnson and to the American people our heartfelt thanks for the warm welcome extended to me and my wife and the members of my party. General Ne Win ruled the country in a military dictatorship until the late 1980s. And while there was a popular uprising in 1988 and democratic elections were held in 1990, the military still refused to give up power. So whatever the authorities may say, our elected representatives still remain the elected representatives of the people. From 2011 to 2015, there was another gradual transition to democracy with the release of the pro-democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who became de facto leader of the country. Her National League of Democracy won last November's elections. But now, the military has once again moved against an elected government. Aung San Suu Kyi and more than 5,000 others have been arrested. Thousands of people have taken to the streets in protest, and at least 800 have died in the fighting. The military controls the government, but does it actually control the country? When I got Thant Mintu on the line, I began by asking that question. Does the military have a firm hold on power? Far from it. I mean, it was the 1st of February when they took over, and I think the generals in charge thought that within hours or perhaps a couple of days, they'd be in full control of the country and would be thinking in terms of 
policies and perhaps even a future election. But now 100 days later, they probably have less of a grip on the country than they had at the beginning. I mean, we've had waves of strikes, a civil disobedience movement, refusal of people to pay taxes. And then after a very bloody crackdown in late February and March, we've had the spread of an armed insurrection in the country as well. And so we're very much in a political crisis still and far from the army having been able to consolidate its coup of February 1st. Looking at the resistance, first of all, what's the situation, say, in the cities? I mean, are they functioning? You mentioned general strikes and universities are closed, I gather. Yangon, Rangoon, Yangon had been at the epicenter of protests back in February and March. And that's where we had this extremely bloody crackdown of hundreds of people being killed. Those huge protests have ended. There's still some small-scale protests going on. But there's a degree of normalcy in the sense that cars are back on the streets, some shops have opened, but in general, it's far from the way it had been before. And there are other parts of the country where even that's not the case, that nothing like normal life has really returned. So we're still very much in the depths of a political crisis. The economy is also collapsing. Schools are still closed. Hospitals are largely shut as well. And in many places also with this new sort of armed insurrection, you have violence spreading not just in the big cities, but in many small towns and villages as well. Yes, and just this week, we had reports that the military retook a city that had been held by rebels. But how widespread are the rebel movements and who are they? Because in the past, you've had these regional separatist movements, but have they now fused with anti-regime, pro-democracy people? So much has happened in the past three months that the political landscape, I think, has really shifted in a very fundamental way. So before the coup happened on the 1st of February, it was a shared government between the army and the National League for Democracy of, of Aung San Suu Kyi. And immediately after the coup, of course, her supporters and her National League for Democracy party people took to the streets, but they were joined by hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of other people as well in peaceful protests. And then when the crackdown began, some of the people in the NLD allying itself with other activists, other civil society people, ethnic minority leaders, set up this parallel government, this national unity government, which now claims legitimacy. And they have been trying very hard to gain international recognition, to encourage people to continue the strikes, the civil disobedience movement, which in turn is a very diffuse movement involving hundreds of different organizations. But in the past couple of months, you've seen this enormous rise in arrests, in intimidation, in harassment, in repression of all kinds to crush these strikes and the civil disobedience movement. And that in turn, over the past month or so, has engendered now this more radical revolutionary movement that also has an armed component to it. It's not a single movement in the sense that it doesn't come under a single leadership, though members of these different groups ally themselves and say that this new national unity government is the legitimate government of the country. But these are lots of little militia of 10, 50, 100, maybe a few hundred men and women. And it was one of these groups that had taken over that town, which was then retaken with enormous force and brutality by the army just a couple of days ago. Looking at it from the other side of the political divide, the military, they ran the country for decades after independence. Is it the same group of people who just couldn't tolerate a democracy or is something changed within the military? And what, if anything, is their goal beyond hanging on to power? I mean, in some ways, this is the army that's been there and that has been in charge in different ways for a very long time. I mean, since the late 1950s and the 
first coup in which the army took over in 1962, that was a generation that largely retired around 2010. A new group of ex-generals then came into office under a new constitution. They are the ones who liberalized the economy, liberalized the political system up to a point that engaged with the West, that got sanctions rolled back. And these generals now, though, the ones that took over in February, these are the guys much younger. Many of them are in their late 40s or 50s. They're the ones who became generals over the past 10 years. So at the same time that the reforms were happening under an older generation of ex-generals, this younger generation of current generals were involved in security measures. They were involved in counterinsurgency. They were the ones responsible for the Rohingya ethnic cleansing in 2016, 2017. And they are the ones who are in power now. So it's a new generation under a general who's been the commander-in-chief since 2010. And what prompted them to move? I think it was a mix of things. I mean, I think the army since 2011 were never really sure exactly how this new constitutional system was meant to work for them. But they saw themselves first and foremost as the guardians of this new constitutional order in which power was shared with elected civilian politicians. They never knew how to manage Aung San Suu Kyi and her enormous popularity they had thought that they would be able with the deck stacked in their favor in terms of holding 25% of seats automatically in parliament. They thought that they would be able to kind of manipulate the landscape and always be to some extent still in charge. But Aung San Suu Kyi kind of broke the mold. She couldn't be really restrained by that constitutional system. And I think they had put all their bets on the elections that happened in November 2020 going in their favor because pro-army parties would only have to win 25% of seats for them to be able to choose the next president. And that didn't happen. So what they thought was going to be a very conservative move is instead kind of trigger this political earthquake. And we still don't know what the future is going to hold at this point. As you say, they're now facing a kind of unanticipated situation, and particularly the economy, which you mentioned earlier. What do you think the current economic situation is and how fast is it deteriorating? It's really scary. I mean, I think the likely or the default scenario over the coming months is that we still have this political crisis, this political stalemate. The army's not able to consolidate its rule, but at the same time, the other side isn't able to deliver a knockout blow and achieve the kind of revolution that many people want. And I think the main variable then over these coming months will be the shape and depth of this kind of economic fall. This is after a year of COVID and lockdown when already poverty had been skyrocketing where businesses by the hundreds, perhaps thousands, were already collapsing. There had been no stimulus measures on the part of the government or really next to none. So people, as well as businesses, were already in a very bad way when all of this wave of instability happened over February and March. The strikes really paralyzed government. They shut down the ports. They shut down logistics. And most importantly, they paralyzed the banking system. And so what we've had over the past couple of months is the entire private banking system being taken out of the economy. And now that the banks are beginning to reopen, the central bank isn't able to provide the liquidity that these private banks need at a time when people are trying to withdraw as much money as possible. So billions of dollars have been taken, or the equivalent of billions of dollars have been taken out of the economy because of this paralysis in the financial system. And that's had this catastrophic knock-on effect throughout the rest of the economy. In human terms, I mean, what that means is just we've seen different reports of income poverty, people making less than $1.90 a day, 
even before the coup, having gone up from 16% to 63% of the population. And we can only imagine now what very vulnerable people, poor people in the country are at. And finally, that's happened at the same time that the healthcare system has collapsed completely as well. Doctors were the first to go on strike after the coup. Hospitals haven't been functioning now for more than three months. That means everyone who had any treatment, whether it was for cancer treatments or people who were dependent on TB medication or HIV AIDS medication, they haven't been able to receive it. No COVID testing, no COVID vaccination. And a million infants who would normally be inoculated against diphtheria, TB, polio, are not receiving inoculations now. So it's a humanitarian disaster really in the making all across the country. So the immediate economic situation is obviously extremely concerning, as you outline. And I think you have also argued that underlying the country's deep instability is an economic system that hasn't been functioning well for decades, neither really in the colonial period or in the more recent capitalist opening up. Yeah, I mean, in the 90s, 2000s, it was a shift to a more capitalist economy. The generals created different markets. It was very exploitative. The country was exporting primary commodities to China and unskilled labor to Thailand. There was a certain amount of growth, but it was extremely unequal growth. And over the 2010s, when the reforms began, it was a further liberalization of markets, which did lead, together with the rolling back of sanctions, to real economic opportunities for a growing middle class. But again, there was extreme inequality. And I think at least for the bottom 20, 30% of people, the economy was failing them. And so it wasn't in good shape. We had a banking crisis from 2016. Then we had COVID. And so all of the problems now are coming on top of a situation which has been very dire, at least for the poorest quarter or third of the population. And bringing it back up to date, given the, the then economic collapse on top of that already fragile economy, plus the armed conflict in the country, are we looking at something that one could call a failed state, a state that simply really stops functioning properly? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one is certainly it's not functioning properly now. So people are not paying taxes, they're not getting services because of the instability. Local civil administration is broken down in many parts of the country. There have been arson attacks on government offices or government records have been destroyed as well. Many civil servants have been part of the strike and civil disobedience movement. So the army generals have had trouble just getting the ministries to function as normal still. So government isn't functioning. But this is also a country where the state has failed them for a very long time. I mean, the Rohingya are an extreme example of people who've lived with a failed state all around them and have been expelled forcefully from the country in the past few years. But there are also many other parts of the country where, as you know, there's been endemic fighting where areas are under the control of what are called ethnic armed organizations, but also of militia. Maybe in a quarter of the country, you have a very militarized environment already, as well as hundreds of these militia, many of whom are deeply involved in transnational criminal networks, especially networks around the methamphetamine industry, which the UNODC, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, estimates as being worth about $75 billion a year. And I think one possible scenario going forward is that as the political stalemate continues and as the economy collapses, it's these illicit economies, including things like the meth economy, that's going to be really able to spread its wings and may become, therefore, a bigger part, not just of the economic landscape, but perhaps the political landscape as well in the coming years. What you're describing is catastrophic. I mean, even not just for the Burmese, but also one step further on, 
for the international community, because it seems to me you're describing a, a narco state emerging in a state of semi-economic collapse in other areas. Presumably that then leads to, I suppose what I'm driving at is, is this something that the international community can afford to ignore? I mean, perhaps it's unfair, but it does seem to me that the situation in Burma is not getting that much attention. However difficult it is to help and to solve the problem now, it's going to be infinitely much more difficult to help and solve, you know, in a year's time or two years' time if things get worse in the way that I described. And so I think this is the time to really put our thinking caps on and think about not just prioritize the situation, but think about what is possible. It's not going to be easy because, as you know, this is an incredibly isolated army and and army elite. They've been in power in different ways as an institution for decades. They're kind of immune from a lot of different kinds of international pressure. I think it's the region that's going to be hit the hardest if Myanmar, Burma is a failed state. It's a place where perhaps COVID could be festering for years on end, as well as being a site of criminal networks and everything else, as well as a terrible human rights crisis and political crisis. But yeah, I think it deserves a lot more priority. And I think if that priority is given now, it's much better than waiting around for the worst to happen over the coming months. I mean, of course, sitting in the West and, you know, given the geopolitical structures of past decades, one tends to think of, well, what is Washington going to do about it? But I guess in the current world, the really influential actors, probably China and maybe the Association of Southeast Asian States. Yeah. And I think this is the problem, really, because, you know, ASEAN, you know, Myanmar, Burma is a part of ASEAN. And so there's been a lot of pressure or encouragement of ASEAN, including, I think, by China, by Japan, by the US, by the EU and by others to try to take the lead. And they have tried to take the lead. They had an emergency summit of ASEAN leaders where they invited the Myanmar commander in chief to come. And they decided they were going to start a process, but that process has been incredibly slow in getting off the ground. They were meant to appoint an envoy that hasn't happened yet. And ASEAN has never really dealt with a situation like this. ASEAN has never dealt with what it calls the internal affairs of one of its member states. And if you look around the region, I mean, the countries that are in some ways the most important and possibly the most influential are countries like China, Japan, India. But these are almost exactly the countries that won't work together on a situation like Burma. So we don't have that regional architecture at a time when I think some kind of regional coordination that would be necessary to really make a difference in Burma right now. Does any outside actor have influence? I mean, for example, the Chinese, who I assume are the biggest external economic force, do you have a sense of what they're trying to do? I think the Chinese were caught off guard by the coup. I don't think they were happy with it. They had cultivated good relations with Aung San Suu Kyi and her government before. I think they had thought that a second Aung San Suu Kyi term would be actually good for them, that this was a government that was generally accepted around the world, but at the same time had kind of frosty relations with the West because of the Rohingya violence. And so that was an opportunity for China. I think they would have much preferred that than this kind of anarchy and instability and, you know, military rule and everything else. But at the same time, I think the Chinese are also not sure what to do. I think they've been very unhappy with what they've seen as a big rise in anti-China sentiment in the country alongside these protests as well. So I think they're waiting a bit on the side to see exactly what the clever move is going to be with them. But as you say, they have huge leverage in some ways or influence or potential influence both because they have a lot of economic clout. I mean, it's by far the country's biggest trading partner, but also because they have indirect ties, at least with many of these ethnic armed organizations, especially in the northeast of the country. So any future peace is also dependent on China. The other country that's actually 
relevant and potentially influential, which we don't normally think about in the Burma context, is Russia. Russia is a big arms supplier to the army. Something like nine or 10,000 Burmese army officers have been trained in Russia over the past 10 to 20 years. The Russian defense minister visited just before the coup. A Russian deputy defense minister has visited more recently. So that's actually a very close military-to-military relationship. Well, with that array of outside actors plus all the internal forces, it's hard to feel optimistic. But I know you're somebody who's done your best to try to foster a better future for Myanmar. So as you try to look at a possible better way out, what might that be realistically? I think in one way, almost everyone in the country agrees on the need for an elected civilian government and wants to see economic reforms continue, want to see development. And what we've seen and what's been very welcome over these past months has been a whole new young generation coming to the fore, taking charge of these protests, organizing the civil disobedience movement, who've also crossed existing ethnic, racial, religious divides and who've openly apologized for not having spoken out during the Rohingya crisis. And so we do see the stirrings of something different, something new, around which you can have a huge amount of popular support. Now, that doesn't solve the immediate crisis, but I think that's a reason to be slightly hopeful in the longer term. I think the army regime itself, the junta, isn't necessarily going to last that long. I mean, they themselves have said they came to power to hold elections in a year or two's time. I don't think, given the depth of feeling and opposition to them, that they'll necessarily be able to hang around for a very long time either. So everything is very fluid in a way. And I think that failed state scenario that I laid out is also something that's very possible as well over the coming year or two. I think what we need now from the international side, more than anything, is some concerted effort to try to protect the most vulnerable people in the country. I mean, if we do have this economic collapse, which you are having now, I mean, there are millions of people who will need assistance, who will need aid. And I think we need to keep at least a sharp focus on it to see what kind of aid is possible, especially on things like COVID vaccination, on inoculation of infants and young children. I mean, these are things that perhaps we can get some consensus around. But secondly, I think at a time when we don't have that obvious regional architecture, but where some international coordination, including China and including the US, is necessary. I think we just need what Antonio Guterres had said was a surge in diplomacy. I think we need very dynamic diplomatic efforts now just to see what's possible. Because I think if that doesn't happen now, as I said before, it's going to be much, much more difficult in a year or two's time. Thank Mintu. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Thant Min Too, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps.